education, 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 as as uh, was the famous policy by uh, Tony Blair when he when he kind of tried to run for prime minister the first time. But anyway, um, well, what was his thinking behind that? Exactly. So I think education, promoting education, higher education, school education, um, is a way of well creating an economy that is productive, um, that is in touch with the modern world. And I think it was in linkage with the fact that the UK at the time was moving, or had already moved away from an industrial um, focus to more of a service-based economy, which is what we have now, although the UK is trying to become more industrial um, slowly. But uh, kind of what does that mean? What does services mean? Services mean effectively the whole um, economy is based on providing uh, support and intellectual expertise for transactions globally, for example, banking, legal, accountancy, consulting, um, diplomacy. So the UK, even though it's not kind of itself a huge industrial power, it is involved in industrial transactions or sector-based transactions through giving those services and through the kind of perpetuation of financial, legal, uh, diplomatic services, the UK economy has sustained itself. You know, the city of London being one of the biggest markets in the world, you know, maybe after the New York market, it's pretty, pretty much the biggest global market. Um, and the UK has been able to draw from its global resource as we have, you know, the idea of the Commonwealth, um, countries which kind of follow and subscribe to the English jurisdiction um, because of the fact that the English jurisdiction is quite... Um, uh, well-developed, stable, and uh, fair, and over a thousand years. And so, sorry for going on on a tangent, but the kind of uh, idea behind that. But um, no, anyway, it's really but, interesting. And yeah. What else would benefit from education? I mean, Britain used to be also quite famous for export of arts as well. Yeah. So music, film, culture. Yeah. Do you think that benefits from education as well? Absolutely. I mean, tradition, culture, literature, and um, these things, of course, are all studied by. Uh, people in the UK and have been alongside more scientific, rational studies, such as, you know, your law and your engineering and your sciences. That's kind of what I mean by the rational studies. But then you've got the cultural studies, you know, your literature, your music, your arts, your film, which is often complementary to that. And it kind of is seen very much equal. And now I think the UK export isn't as big as it used to be, right? We've got Hollywood, which is kind of bigger, obviously, since, you know, alongside the rise of American, kind of the American, Pax Americana, you know, America being the most powerful nation on earth. But we have, um, that tradition is is very much important, um, even as a propaganda, as a cultural propaganda. You know, one of the advantages the West had over, say, Russia or China, I mean, just focus on Russia during the Cold War was it had the cultural edge, you know, Hollywood. And that's spreading all across the world. American TV, American culture, MTV, kind of geared people's minds towards favouring the US over Russia just because of that, if you know what I mean, right? So, yeah, for loads of things. Presents a lifestyle. A lifestyle, yeah. Friends is one of the most watched things on Netflix. On, on Netflix, Netflix, right? You know, promotes lifestyle uh, globally, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Just like, as you said, like now TikTok and social media, People can just, you know, watch how life is in the West and all the luxury and all the, all the appeal and then they just get drawn to it just yeah. because of that. And there's something um, sort of politicians in the West are worried about 
actually TikTok is this Chinese app. It could, at the flick of a button, start yeah. promoting Chinese interests if it wanted to. Yeah. Um, why, why should it surface accounts from the West that promote that lifestyle? They could do something else quite quickly. Um, we got on a bit of a tangent. So we were talking about education and how yeah. it can benefit uh, individuals and society. And I think even, um, even films and TV shows can benefit from a sort of well rounded education of its cast. I think a show like Sherlock Holmes a few years ago was really, really successful across the pond as well. And it just had a very sort of uh, classic storyline. It was really well written, but also fused a lot of uh, cross-disciplinary uh, knowledge into it as well. So Sherlock comes and he's solving all of these crimes with knowledge from across the board. So he's drawing on his technological expertise. It's really well written as a show as well. as a lot of uh, flashy cinematography and so the cast that came to put that together had a really wide discipline and so I think that's what's really important about education is that really whatever discipline you're in benefits from you also being well versed in other disciplines maybe another example as well you can have classical examic texts on uh, law Islamic law for mm. example or mm. maybe on how do I put this on history or I want to say hadith studies and the study of like this and that linguistics and language yeah Yeah. but the textbooks themselves may be written as poems yeah uh, which is I think a really incredible feed and really beautiful and really goes to talk about someone's dedication to excellence and and trying to write not just a textbook on a hadith on the study of uh, hadith literature but on but making that excellent and writing it as a poem but I think that really requires a sort of cross-disciplinary polymath approach where you mm. really care about learning and education for its own sake not just I'm going to study history because uh, it's what I like to do or I'm going to study history because maybe I can you know write a book and get famous on mm. it but actually I'm learning for, for the sake of learning for the sake of learning right. that's it's interesting on, on, on the learning for the sake of learning um, we're, we're in a world now it's kind of undoubted that when we see education it's pretty much linked to a rational economic outcome. You know, if you study X, you'll get a good job, you'll make lots of money. If you study that, oh, what are you going to do with that degree? Oh, Mickey Mouse degree or whatever, right? You know, that whole thing. Oh, why are you going to study history of art? What are you going to do with that? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, my parents, our parents, we've all heard something along those lines, if you know what I mean, right? Um, the conventional choices. If you're going to study, you study a path, a well-trodden path, like an engineering degree, uh, medicine, STEM, so science, STEM, technology, engineering, yeah. math, uh, your med- medicine, medicine, law, um, accountancy, finance, or uh, something along along those lines, commerce. Um, and then, as you said, so learning for the sake of learning has somewhat in our modern world, even if you just look at the past thirty years, just amongst Muslim communities globally, has kind of diminished into a more secular, rational pursuit of, of knowledge. Um, and not very people just view their study of whatever they're studying purely because they enjoy it. They do enjoy it. I'm sure they intellectually enjoy it. But the back of their head is often, oh, I want to get that internship at that company or I'll get that graduate job at that big bank or whatever. Do you think that's fair? Like what could... If someone's studying, you know, theology at a university, what are they going to be able to do with that afterwards? Do you think? Yeah, and I, 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 I don't know. I'm sure you might have thoughts as well. I think that is, I think it's fair uh, in the sense that there's nothing wrong. I think even Islamically, there's nothing wrong with 
pursuing a material goal, so economic goals. The issue is why, why do you want to pursue that goal? I think the issue is why. But in and of itself, I think it's still noble to study something for an economic outcome. Um, earning money, being pro prosperous is something which is you know, good. Uh, it's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I do find at the same time that the really the issue is that we can be more open-minded as to what routes will take us to economic prosperity, but at the same time intellectual development. So I think that studying things like engineering or studying things like medicine, great. But at the same time, we can also complement those studies with things which may not necessarily lead to an e economic outcome, but it ensures personal development and intellectual development, which is better for society, yourself, and will lead to even more economic outcomes as well. So I think yeah. we should have a more well-rounded, holistic view of study. That's a really good, really good point. I like your point around intention as well. So making sure that whatever you do, you have a clear vision for it. So if you're aiming to make a lot of money, is why, why is that? Is it so you can just buy a, a fancy car yeah. and impress everyone? Or is it so that you can support your family, support your community? Mm. Um, I think it's really impressive to see a lot of people who now have a lot of wealth giving back and setting up scholarships. I think I know like the Aziz Foundation, for example, and that's opened so many doors for young Muslims in this country to study a master's and basically reskill and basically change the course of their life. Uh, yeah. Maybe in their mid-20s or mid-30s actually say, you know what, I understand the world a bit better. And I want to do this degree because I'm really passionate about yeah. about whatever. And without that opening, what would they be able to do? They and that's of... breaking some of the stereotypes as well. You know the idea, I've seen a lot of people who go down that route studying film or drama or something along those lines of journalism. Not a lot of people would be willing to put down the amount of money to study it, thinking, oh, I'm not going to get a job after it. It's too niche. There's no, there's no market. Whereas these Foundation has facilitated that study of the arts as well as you know, I'm seeing lots of people wanting to go down human rights or law studies, uh, political studies, as well as these things. So. I think as well, there's a lot of education around education. So a lot of people, you mentioned a lawyer, human rights advocate, a journalist. Mm. How many people really know about that when they're, you know, 16 or something mm. and they're picking their A-levels that will then lead them to picking a degree potentially? And so... People think, well, what can I do with that? Or an English degree is maybe a good route into journalism, but people think, oh, what can I do with an English degree or a maths degree? I can become an English teacher or a maths teacher. Exactly. So there needs to be more understanding and education around what do these degrees actually lead to? And actually, if you're going to invest all this cash into a degree, are you going to get what you thought out of it? Like you could do a drama degree that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to be a certified actor at the end of it. No, exactly. Oh yeah, and, and I, now that you mentioned that, I think there's like three ways of looking at it. Number one, it's like, and, and, and I've seen this, it's number one, it doesn't matter what you study, as long as you go to a brand name institution, and then, you know, say you go to your Oxford, your Cambridges, your Harvards, and LSEs, whatever, uh, you could study pottery studies, if they have that degree, and then you'd be fine, just because of the name, the brand name will carry you through. So I've heard that. I've also heard the idea of, um, you know, as you said, if I study English or if I study history, I'm just going to have to become a teacher. But then, I'm, but then I find a lot of other communities or not, a lot of other people, perhaps people from certain other backgrounds, have seen that 
I can study X and then convert to Y later. So I can study English and then become a lawyer. I can study English and become a banker. I mean, it might be more difficult. I might need to do a bit. I need to upskill a bit more on the math side, but I can do it. Um, so you see people who understand the malleability and the transferability of degrees um, as well. Um, so, and then the third thing which you kind of see is uh, people who, when they're choosing um, their degree, are kind of focusing purely on the direct vocational aspect of it. So, you, for example, if you study medicine, you're automatically a doctor. If you study veterinary science, you're automatically a vet kind of thing. I mean, I guess, uh, maybe I could be wrong, but that's my understanding. Um, if you study engineering, you are an engineer. Um, and obviously, you join a graduate scheme, so you know more than me. Um, so a lot of people just go to, uh, you know, if you study law, you're not really a lawyer yet. You still have to do further training, further skills, further study, you start to kind of you know, gain more, more of that thing. But like this, the different ways of, in how pe people see things and um, yeah. Yeah, I think as well for our generation, it was, it did seem a bit more kind of railroaded. Like if you're going to do this maths degree, let's say, you're going to have to do something with maths after it. And at least we understood, okay, there's a lot of things that involve maths. I think previous generations were like, what well, can I do with a maths degree? Mm. I can become a maths teacher. Mm. But I think uh, the younger generations, they see so much online on TikTok. They say, you know, I've heard of uh, kids in primary school who are like, I want to be a freelance journalist when I grow yeah. up. Yeah. So I, I don't think I know what that means now, let alone no. yeah. an eight-year-old. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, now that you mentioned that, yeah. I mean, the people, the younger generation nowadays, they have very specific outside the box type career choices. So we mentioned human rights lawyer, for example, something like that. Um, they have ambitions like that, or, uh, you know, a diplomat focusing on X, Y, Z, or I want to work in this or that. They have very specific interests. And I think social media and the access to knowledge has obviously, it's gonna be a, been a trend of what we're mentioning, especially amongst the Gen Z and, and the younger millennials the millennials at the end of the stream, they've ha they've caught that obviously tail end. But yeah, the, the whole STEM and STEM focus number one and number two the kind of wider access to knowledge. For example, I think it was a post recession thing where maths graduates were very much in demand for working in banks or working in financial institutions or services industries so the idea that math mathematicians or people with math degrees will have uh, analytical skills um, ability to program and to understand financial models and give accurate clear and kind of pressing analysis so that was more in vogue and it still is in vogue um, after the recession uh, especially I think it was more of a s area where I think after the recession a lot of the industries wanted more precision uncertainty in the financial activities as opposed to pre-recession where risk kind of went all over, was everywhere. All right. So, uh, for example, so math, a lot of maths graduates now, a lot of people studying maths, they think, I'm going to study maths and I'm going to go to a bank. And it's, but it wasn't like that maybe 20, 30 years ago. Maybe they never thought like that. You know, they all, I'm going to do maths to become a teacher. I'm going to do a PhD. I'm going to become a whatever, you know. What about studying just for the interest of the subject or to you know, further your understanding of, of the world and of humanity. I think that as well is something which you're seeing more of now and 
I think that's quite novel. But I personally view that you should always have a pragmatic sense as well, like an idea that you're going to do that, but at the same time, focus on how you can monetize that to some extent. Uh, what I mean by that is, um, I, and, and this is one thing that I guess we can talk about, the Sahabas or Islamic scholars throughout history, they studied the disciplines for an intellectual, spiritual pursuit, you know, and to understand the world and to interpret the law, interpret the text. But at the same time, they had a trade or a business or something on the side. So similarly, I think in this modern age, if you are studying something for the sake of just understanding and furthering, furthering your knowledge of the world, something like, I don't know, I would do politics, fine. And you can do that, but you, can, you should always think about how can I transfer these skills as well into an economic activity. Um, unless, for example, you want to go further into academia, which is itself an industry, itself an economic pursuit, you know, so, you know, study a PhD, go become a professor or an academic or a thinker or whatever. So, yeah, I, but at the same time, I think knowledge for the sake of knowledge itself is virtuous. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting because whenever we talk about knowledge and learning, I always try and think of a counterexample. I think that's a common thing in mathematics, like, if you can think of a counterexample, you, you've disproved something. Mm. So if we think of learning and learning anything is good, I think people say that. But what if you're just learning celebrity gossip? You know, is that good? Is that really helping you? Mm. I mean, that's still learning. You could do a degree in Kardashian studies if you wanted to. How is that going to help you? Who knows? But um, in Islam, we have this idea of beneficial knowledge. So il nafia. And what is benefit? So you could say this helps you to strike up conversation, but really beneficial is anything that helps you to draw closer to Allah and I think yeah. we're we agreed on this point that actually whatever you're learning um, is fine as long as you have a greater vision behind it mm -hmm. so someone could be doing give me a subject let me any subject uh, let's say engineering engineering okay so someone could be doing engineering because um, you know maybe they don't have any vision they're just like oh let me do the next thing I can yeah, that's not a great place to be in. They might come to the end of the degree, find out they, they don't like it, it's too hard. Maybe even in the middle of the degree, they find that they could have uh, a bad intention. Maybe they want to go and work for a weapons company afterwards. Uh, I once met a guy who said that. He said that he studied chemistry at uni because he wanted to work for the military and develop more effective chemical weapons. <laughs> and I was like, I think that's the scariest thing yeah, that someone's yeah. ever told me. And, and, and Goodbye. Irony, I, thought, I mean, with Ilman Nafin, what is benefit? You know, that's it. Maybe... I'm not saying it's true. Maybe, maybe, maybe even he has noble intention, which I'm not saying. Maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe. You know, maybe develop weapons to be a deterrent and to save the world. You know, the whole deterrent theory, you know. But anyway, character. Yeah, yeah, the idea that yeah. creating weapons actually makes people safer and less likely to wage war. Yeah. So maybe that was his way. your enemies off, you know. Yeah. Maybe that was his way of averting war. Okay, fair enough. But I, I think even then, as long as there's a, a bigger vision, and for Muslims that needs to be... A noble vision that's you know, mm. seeking seeking Allah. I think that's quite hard though when you're you're sixteen and you have the prospect of <laughs> doing a degree. What? How much can you really think about yeah. at that age? Now that you mention that, I mean, if you, for example, to say I want to do engineering because I want to work in infrastructure and build roads and build buildings and make people's lives easier so they can carry on doing what they do, or which is, I think, as you said, a ilmul nafia because it gives a social human benefit to people. So. Um, the idea of benefit being broad, you know, um, if it's assisting in human progress, civilizational progress, um, technological progress to enable people to do what they do and develop society or to benefit mankind, 
I think that is also a, a great kind of endeavour. It's yeah. a broad church. There's lots of ways of Ilman Nafi about, you know, benefiting people. And I like to say, like, well, a lot of people are maybe working in some kind of yeah, information worker job or they're working as an engineer or a doctor and they think, oh, you know, I really wish I was I was just able to, to serve Allah every day. I really wish I was just able to learn the deen and practice and worship. But I feel bad doing a secular job. I wish I could do more of a, a religious job. Actually, doctors never say that. Doctors are always they very... They know what they're doing. They're very clear that they're saving lives every day and they feel good about that. And I'm happy for them. Um, but And uh, that is the Islamic profession that is the job that's the act of worship yeah and i think a lot of other people can get uh confused that other jobs lack that sort of mission and that purposefulness that medicine has and we end up in this weird stalemate where all the medics are sad that the nhs is underpaying them and everyone that's not a medic is sad that they they don't have enough vision or purpose in their job but actually i say well what if what if the whole world was muslim Mm. then you know you wouldn't need also many deities and you know you wouldn't just have people who need to study islam to be islamic scholars mm. and putting out books on how islam integrates with the west if the whole world was muslim you'd still need engineers to build the roads and for yeah. people to be able to get around and you know visit their parents and all these sort of things and technology as well you provide tech platforms like facebook like how many people have been i mean facebook's done a lot of uh, terrible things as well but how many people have been able to connect with relatives or find housing or so many things that have helped even with the the refugee crisis because of technology that's enabled better communications and not mm. just yeah not just facebook i mean uh, any any technology in that sense oh definitely i mean coming from a and we can i guess we can share some of our own insights so uh, uh, you know if you think about another profession which can potentially help mankind or help people is say the legal profession um that, whether they do or not is a different matter because obviously lawyers cause more problems than they solve and all that stuff which we hear about. But generally, the idea that someone from a legal profession, I think I've read a hadith where or somewhere where solving problems or helping people from their problems is one of the most virtuous acts. You know, just if someone's coming to you with an issue or a problem, you know, and you're assisting them so they can carry on doing what they're doing and relieving their stresses and relieving their burdens or correcting injustice is one of the most noble acts and the noble and, and noble endeavors so it can be as you said a very islamic profession even if you're not engaged in a kind of an outwardly islamic profession so like a scholar or someone who works in a mosque or something like that or charity i guess mm-hmm. to some extent um let's not get started on charities yeah let's not get started on charities <laughs> but you're still in a position where you are benefiting uh, people and mankind and you are engaged in an Islamic profession. I think there's an ayah in the Quran which mentions kind of the people who fear God most are the men, are the ulama, the men of understanding. Um, and I've read lots of interpretations and I've heard that yes, the ulama are the religious scholars and, and so forth, which I, I, I accept they are, but I've also heard a broader understanding where he says the real men of understanding are scientists as in people of all science men of all sciences all disciplines and all arts and all knowledges uh, knowledge sorry and people of that background they are the real ulama as well and they when they really understand and unpack their training and their expertise they really will appreciate the the kind of the bounties and the wonders of god so 
the fact that God or Allah recognizes knowledge and wisdom from all arts and all disciplines. You know, we mentioned this before. You know, that Adam was taught all the languages and all the sciences and all the disciplines, all the names, all the names, and you know, the, you know, whatever the, the the nomenclature and the terms and the terminologies and so forth. Yeah, I'm really glad you mentioned that actually, because we always have this this fallacy that's peddled about. Uh, uh, science versus religion, mm. but actually, a majority of the scientific community are believers. Believers, are, yeah. are religious people. It's just the non-believers who are get who get kind of very vocal. Very vocal, right, yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. And actually, I think for believers, especially for Muslims, we have such a robust faith tradition that the more and more science we uncover, the more it confirms everything we know from the Quran. And I even went to a talk. There's an excellent talk. It's online from Cambridge Muslim College about. Um, what is our current understanding of quantum physics and how does that relate to the soul? And actually this understanding, the more we understand things like quantum physics and dark matter, it basically just confirms the existence of an unseen world. Mm. And so all these things in the Quran, this idea of the things that people nowadays might say, oh, you know, that's hocus pocus, that's magic, this idea of jinns, or mm. the idea that your body has a soul that is going to go somewhere else after you, you've died. You know, some people say this is you know spiritual nonsense, but... Actually, it's only confirmed further by science. So people would often say it's unscientific, but actually we find now it's only confirmed further by science. By science, by the, quant- by the quantum science, you mean. Like exactly. You talk about yeah. even dimensions beyond the third dimension. Apparently there's fourth, fifth, sixth. Exactly. There's so many dimensions of existence and, that, and, and the whole laws of science have been kind of ripped apart by quantum. I mean, what I mean by that is not ripped apart, but it's been developed, you know, like the idea of how atoms behave, in a quantum, yeah. it's very much counter what we traditionally think about how they behave. Yeah, and like I think you have Newtonian physics, yeah, which is yeah. very kind of clear. It's and kind rational, of like, I yeah. throw a ball up, It'll it's going to come down. And yeah. It's kind of your everyday principles that you can observe. And then we get into quantum physics, which becomes a lot less intuitive. Yeah. And what the scholar was saying was actually based on his work on quantum physics. The more he understood it, just examining it as a scientist, it just affirms the existence of an unseen world, hmm. uh, not not the opposite. Where people hmm. say, "Oh, the more we have religion, oh, the more we have science," people think the less they need religion. But actually, it's the opposite. Opposite. The so for believers, the more they study science, the more it confirms just the beauty of Allah's creation, its its intricateness, and its depth. Yeah. Oh wow. I mean, now, now that you mentioned, and I think that that quantum physics or quantum science or whatever is actually the foundation of so many things right i mean the quantum method i guess is linked heavily to ai and um, uh, nuclear research scientific development weapons research everything is kind of pretty much now i mean i'm guessing you you'll be able to tell me if you're, you're the scientist from science background has, has a great link and like now that you mentioned that i mean when you science is also a vocation if you uh, or the research you do in science is something which you can for its own intellectual intrinsic value, appreciate, but at the same time, that research, you know, we talk about Oppenheimer or whatever, that research can lead to a rational, material, social breakthrough. It can be used for in, in inventing, in, you know, technology or inventing products or inventing yeah, nu- nuclear bombs and nuclear, bombs, nuclear right? power as well. Yeah, and nuclear power. And, you know, just thinking, that's, a, that's an area where you can combine, and what we mentioned earlier, your knowledge for the sake of knowledge, and appreciating Allah and being pious alongside making money. You know, you can combine two things. You know, you can make money, you can be prosperous, but at the same time, you can 
further, that. further humanity. Further humanity, yeah. And I think science is, and I would say, in the past twenty years, I've seen like a roller coaster, and I'll explain like what I mean by that. Um, like in the thirty, but thirty, forty, fifty years ago, obviously my parents come from South Asia, you know, in in that in that area, post sixties where technology was booming, there was a dissatisfaction with the Islamic sciences, and I'll explain what I mean by that. It was almost like. Well, if you're smart and you've got good grades and you've got talent, study medicine, study engineering, you get a visa, you get to go to the States, you get to go to the UK, you'll make loads of money. Um, if, what's the point of being a Mawlubi? What's the point of becoming a Hafiz? What's the point of becoming a Maulana, you know, studying in the madrasa? You'll be stuck in a mosque and you won't make money. Now, that, was a, that was very much in vogue um, as secular politics kind of took the wave across the, um, the world in the nationalism, with the rise of nationalism. Then what happened was, um, there was an age where we were in the war of terror for about 20 years for the past. And what, then, does, what does that mean? Let's just clarify. Yeah, the war on we terror. We weren't in a literal war. Yeah, we weren't in a literal war. If, 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 if anything, can even have a war on terror? You know, the idea of terror being an indeterminate idea, you know, an object which can't accept defeat or claim victory. So this idea that war, terror, if it's a war on terror... When will it ever end? You know, when is the victory? Where it's so fascinating. Yeah, a war against Russia, for example, a war against, you know, America, but then there's a war against terror. You know, it's 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 really it's interesting. Abstract. It's so abstract. I think yeah. it's more of a political move political. to introduce absolutely yeah. extra surveillance and uh, and so much stuff. Yeah. legislation. But anyway, yeah. So yeah. you say that was basically that was an era that was defined by Muslims being under, Un- under extra scrutiny, extra scrutiny, and global oil. And I do think there was an oil-linked um, kind of escapade all across the, 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 the you know the Gulf and so forth for about twenty years, where Muslims were globally seen as a suspect community uh, linked to terrorism. You know what we know as terrorism, like acts of extreme violence and disruption across the West. You know the nine eleven towers that led to, as you said. A wave of wars. You, know, you had you know, Afghanistan wars. You had the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq war, and you know, and then it carried on all throughout the kind of the two thousands and two thousand and tens. I think it kind of pretty much finished around the destruction of ISIS after the fall of ISIS. It's kind of all died down now, sort of like twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen. But anyway, at that time, we used to hear a lot of scholars, perhaps because of an existential threat or a crisis, saying that Muslims we need to reconnect with the arts. We need to reconnect with our tradition. We have lots of doctors, we have lots of engineers, but we don't have scholars. We don't have ulama. We don't have people who can connect the text with the context. So that was a big thing, and that was in vogue. And I remember growing up thinking, uh, I was or being told, you know, what we really need is people who study theology, people who understand the West and the East and can bridge the gap. I'm sure you remember when you were growing up, and that was a big thing. You see scholars like Hamza Yusuf, Abdullah Murad, very much pushing this way of thinking. Um, and now it's kind of gone full circle, where we're seeing people say, no, we need people in STEM. Muslims, we need to re-engage with STEM and contribute to this developing world. And at the same time, we can also do our Islamic studies. It's kind of now, you can do both. And the idea of technology going online, looking, you know, you know whatever we're seeing now, you, you can do both. And we're seeing people doing both. Now, you just see young people now. They're studying Islamic sciences on the side, they're doing their HIFs, but then they're studying at the top universities and they're doing medicine, they're doing... I'm sure you see a lot more of that now than it used to be. Very, very inspiring yeah. stuff. Yeah, So, like, how do you see the past 20, 30 years growing up, the, the kind of the trend of education and so forth? I think there's a good 
uh, good that you mentioned Hamza Youssef and Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad, Timothy Winters. They, I think what makes their, sp- uh, their speeches so engaging is just the sort of a polymath or mm. being able to pull in so many different angles. It's not just, oh, what is the Islamic view on this, but actually pulling in also from the Christian narrative and being able to compare and contrast that and then also being able to draw on popular culture and science as well, yeah. not just, I've studied Islamic theology, I know X, or I'm a doctor, I know Y, but actually being able to have this cross-disciplinary understanding. And when you're giving a talk on you know, the Friday Qutbah or some equivalent talk, you don't need to be, you know, have an in-depth knowledge of, of medicine to bring in an anecdote about it. Mm-hmm. You kind of need this sort of cursory understanding. And I think, but in order to even get a cursory understanding, need to have an academic interest or even just a, an interest in interest like an interest in learning things mm. for the sake of bettering your own understanding bettering your understanding of the world and ultimately what happens when we know the world in depth is that a worldly uh, is that a worldly pursuit or do we understand the world better so that we can understand Allah better and understand his creation and everything and his workings and now that you mentioned that's really really interesting the idea of drawing things together and knowing how to know that's um, that kind of when I hear that it kind of stems me uh, to like the idea of like the first principles or the usul or the you know the foundations of classical learning um, you know learning how to think learning how to be critical find analogies be able to distinguish critical thinking logic creativity um and those kind of things which are developed and honed, you know, by your studies in Islamic studies, but also in the West, you know, when a lot of the prime ministers of the past, um, they used to study, you know, the great classics, which is, I think, the Western equivalent of the classical studies of Muslim, Muslims do, you know, when they study, when you study the greats or classics, and now I think it's become PPE, if we look at it, kind of the Oxford analogy, they learn about logic how to interpret complex texts and how to draw knowledge from different areas and we have that as well as Muslims the equivalent of that yeah because I mean classics and PPE are said to be uh, you know the degrees of the prime ministers aren't they And but they how seem like such, yeah. such academic degrees like yeah. classics you're going to go on Latin and then you're going to go on to become the prime minister that's Why? their Arabic that's their grammar that's, that's really, their syntax that's so interesting to think of it that way that's kind of the if you're smart enough to do that, then yeah. you, can, you can run the country. And you can run the country. And, and you know, the ulama, their ulama is obviously they're studying, you know, Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, they did great debates. So, so we have our own equivalents, you know, with, with, with scholars or thinkers or philosophers. As you said, yeah, and, and you know, the study of Kalam, you know, in, in the Islamic classical sciences, and obviously they have their own logical studies. They also study economics and, um, in the, you know, the classics. If you ask... A lot of people who traditionally did study the classics why and they said that classics is classically timeless if you look at the economic problems of today tomorrow yesterday you can all boil it down to the fundamental first principles the core social kind of structural repetitions if you understand those principles you can navigate any error um, and that's kind of the thing so you know the same issues of justice what is justice? What is right? What is wrong? What is fair? What is unfair? You know, what's a good society? What's a bad society? These all stem down what we talk about now to kind of a lot of the Aristotelian, play, you know, you know, uh, morals and ethics. You learn that, 
you can navigate navigate across any discipline. So that's the kind of way they think. And that's kind of morphed into PPE, which has added more of the kind of, you know, modern understanding of things. Of economics as of well. Of economics as well, as we've developed post-war, post-empire, post, you know, post, um, uh, you know, well, you know, technological revolution. There, there's an underlying assumption there, I think we should call out there. I mean, the underlying assumption is that the human condition doesn't change. Mm. That humans in ancient Rome had very much the same uh, wants and needs that people in today's age have. It's actually a really uh, good opening of a documentary. I think it's called Capitalism, A Love Story by Michael Moore. He makes all these sort of mm. iconoclastic um, documentaries. And he's really smart. He's taken a documentary about the fall of Rome. And he said, you know, the, the wealth disparity was too large. You know, some people were living in this absolute decadence. People only cared about, you know, bread and circuses. Some people were living these decadent lives of luxury, eating too much and just going to the circus while others were starving and they had this great disparity between their, their slave class and the, the ruling elites. So he's taken this kind of old school documentary from like some sort of history class about the fall of Rome. And as he's taken this narration, he's overlaid it on videos of America. And he's shown, and like you said, he showed that these problems of time are, are effectively timeless, that people kind of end up in these cycles because people ultimately want, like it says in the Quran, people compete in the want for money status comparing each other with or oh, who has more children or who has this who has that and and people say that again today just on the children point that oh you know nowadays people don't have kids they have they have pets because if you're living in the city and you're working on two incomes you can barely afford kids you can afford pets uh, kids are now like a privilege of the of the elites and the ultra rich that if you're able to who's able to afford to raise you know five or six kids mm. and actually educate them properly that's that's interesting too that and um well, I think I've read somewhere where the kind of the average, the economic kind of number for how many kids you're meant to have now is about three, or is it two? I think that's something which is because it's kind of balance out the population or something. It's become less and less as time has gone on. There's a time when it was about two, and then it went up to three now, but I think we've got a, you know, a high death rate or something. Now that you mentioned that, it's quite interesting because we mentioned tradition and say, you know, they're looking at Rome or they're looking at Greece. I've always found it ironic that, say, we're in England and the classics degree has kind of artificially defined, like, the greats or the classics as our point of focus, our ulama, our tradition, our salaf, salaf salihin our three pious early ancestor generations who know how to... So it's like a bunch of English people are thinking Rome is where we must look to. You know, they are our intellectual forefathers. It's a Western European construct of an ideal era or or not, you know, the idea that they accept, you know, part of, you know, the bloodshed and the chaos and the confusion within the kind of, the, that's also what they study, the human condition. So they've kind of made a tra- tradition, they forged a tradition, they've created a tradition. And I guess with the ulama, if you look at different, tri- uh, I mean, nowadays, if you look at different constructs of Muslim civilization or the golden age or different paths that we must look upon to idealize or to maybe not romanticize but to interpret we will we we have our own thing now so for example if you look at a lot of the texts or the areas which Hamza Yusuf or Murad will talk about it might be you know in the Umayyad period they might talk about Andalus they might talk about the two civilizations in Morocco or Mauritania 
the learning in Yemen, Syria, you know. So we have our own tradition as well. And you have Salafis who kind of often look beyond that and they say, no, 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 we've got to go back to the Sahabas only. And then, and even then, then you have a righteous example of the Sahaba. Of the Sahabas, right? So we all create our own traditions and we look at them and think, mm-hmm. how do we interpret the modern age? The classic studies is doing its own thing. Because when you look at ancient Rome, it was in many ways quite a perverse society. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure I want to expand on that. There's no, no, so no, much no, to no, go no, into. Yeah. Just, but again, like the slavery they had, the decadence, the luxury, the inequality. Mm. The, the backstabbing, the political manoeuvring. And, exactly, yeah. yeah. And, the, the hedonistic lifestyle as well. Yeah. I think that's a, yeah. a way to summarise it without getting into the details. Absolutely. A lot, and then yeah. the whole frugality and the whole stoicism, which kind of came as a, you know, as a counter to that. So you have that extremes as well and even the idea of you know mythology the greek gods or i think you know, i think we were discussing at one point the whole gods and goddesses that represent the human conflict and chaos within you know the whole you know caprice and greed and pride and conflict and uh, family divisions and so forth i mean the, the soap opera big one big great soap opera you know the whole do you think there's a certain privilege to that though like if you're if you know that as soon as you get out of university, if not earlier, you need to be providing for your family. You literally need to be putting food on the table. Do you have time to be studying classics? Yeah, I think so. And this is the thing which I say is amazing. Like, if you look at the past hundred years, you had, as I said, judges and barristers and politicians and bankers studying disciplines like that. And then at the same time, they transferred their skills into rational activities such as working, making money, but then that study developed them as people, allowed them to continue developing and allowed them to understand society and interpret society for its apparent nature. Um, So I think you have absolutely the time to do that if you want to. Um, And it links back to personal development, you know, studying the literatures and the, the philosophy, philosophies will unlock or expand your communication, your way of thinking, your way of interpreting um, and allow you to become a better person, which is in and of itself virtuous. For example, you can teach your kids your, you know, and then they can become like that as well, your community, and you can make for a higher living, for a higher goal. And at the same time, it will help you progress in your career. You know, if you're more well-read and more aware, more alert, strategically, economically, or it only make you be more successful in your career. A more rounded individual. More rounded, yeah. So I think we've migrated a bit, so now we're talking about studying the dean. So in the same way someone might study classics, yeah. makes them a more rounded individual in understanding you know, ancient Rome and the human condition in a way that helps them to be prime minister. We're saying that studying Islamic history, studying the early Salaf, the, the righteous predecessors, will help a Muslim to become more rounded in their understanding of the Absolutely, dean. Absolutely, yeah helping them to draw closer to Allah and also I think nowadays that's so important like you said to be able to teach your kids there's so many atheist narratives or even a lot of times a lot of fallacies that are flying around like we mentioned earlier the religion versus science fallacy it's quite easy to get swept into that Um, but if you have like a solid grounding in Islamic sciences in logic in reason I think a lot of Muslims go go by and their parents don't necessarily have time to teach them in depth. They just know, well, we don't eat pork, we pray on time, this is how we pray. But they don't understand the depths of that. They don't necessarily understand the deep uh, meanings of the theology. Like They just say, where is Allah? Allah is everywhere. And then atheists come with these ridiculous attacks like, well, if Allah is everywhere, can he 
be in two places at once. Can he make a rock? He cannot cannot lift. No. And or can he be a square circle? And all these ridiculous things that actually, as a teenager, you might think, oh wow, that's true. What he can't, he can't lift the rock, but he can mm. make the rock. Oh, what's going on? Mm. And then uh, the question know. itself is a fallacy. Exactly, yeah. understanding a bit of basic logic, mm. like you, you understand this this stuff very easily. And so I think it's important for young Muslims who might be in their twenties or thirties to actually think, well, you know, I've read so much, you know, science or law or engineering or medicine. How much actually have I taken my Islamic education seriously? Mm. How much do I understand, you know, basic theology questions? Do I have the answer to those? If I have kids in, you know, five to ten years and they're asking me questions like this, am I going to be able to answer those appropriately? So that, that's why I think it's really important for Muslims to study Islamic sciences as well, either full-time. I'm, I'm personally more of an advocate for studying it part-time. Because mm. I yeah, I agree. I found that quite successful. Like I yeah. can study a little bit every week, which keeps me keeps reminding me every week so I don't it never slips to the back of my mind and also it means I can do that alongside having having a job so having studied computer science at university and now working in tech I can actually continue to study Islam along the side and get into a position that I think is helpful Mm. and we've mentioned this as well and like the idea of studying an Islamic kind of course alongside your western secular courses in combination uh, if if you if your concern is, uh, you know, how am I going to make money? What am I going to do? Am I going to be broke? It's too expensive. There is a intellectual, spiritual, religious benefit, but you can also, and I'm not saying this in a uh, kind of insincere or insidious way, but you can make money too. I mean, if that is your one of your noble intentions, you know, I want to earn money, whatever, you can. I mean, there's a market for the Islamic sciences whether it's learning, teaching, or even now as we're getting into, we were mentioning recently in a Muslim country, the Muslim world has be, is, is getting more developed and technologized. For example, Islamic finance. That's an area where Islamic scholarship can lean itself towards developing an economy that's strong in Muslim countries or an alternative financial system away from the Western interest-based system, which is slowly starting to dwindle especially after the, you know, uh, the financial crises, after crisis, recession, the wars, A. And you can make, if, if money is your A, I'm not saying it should be your pure, you can. So don't think that, oh, I'm going to be broken or whatever. And as we mentioned earlier on, I think we were discussing um, before, uh, some of the greatest scholars, and I'm going to ask you about this. What, so if I were to ask you, what was, say, Imam Abanifa, how was he? I think, How did he get by? I think that's a really good example because a lot of people have this Islamic awakening where they understand that they really want to live their faith to, to their fullest. They understand that's what's fulfilling in life and that's what they want to do. And then there's this question of, well, how do I live my? How do I live as a good Muslim without becoming an imam? Mm. Like, what else can you do? And so hopefully we've discussed that a lot. Like anything mm. can be an act of worship if you have the right intention and trying to draw close to Allah. Absolutely. And then you think of scholars of the past and you're like, well, how did they do it? How did... Imam Abu Hanifa, obviously, is a great scholar of the past. How did he find the time to do that? And I think one thing we see is that a lot of scholars of the past weren't, weren't married. I mean, a lot of them were, so let's focus on that, actually. A lot of them were married. And a lot of them came either from rich families or they had a business of themselves, of their own, or, or both. They had a family business that helped to sustain them. And I think it comes back to this point that, to some extent, uh, academic study is a bit of a privilege. Mm. Like, you need to be in a relatively comfortable financial situation to be able to study uh, 
study academically without having a clear outcome. I know one much more modern example I really wanted to share, which is of uh, one gentleman that graduated from Oxford and he was studying law, I believe, and he went into corporate law and just just did not enjoy it. Just was like, well, what am I doing here as a Muslim in corporate law where actually I would rather be studying my dean and doing that properly. And uh, He was young, he's in his 20s, he's not married yet. So he's like, you know what, I'm going to up and go. And he, he went to the Middle East to study. Uh, study in you know very traditional schools of Islamic learning in the Middle East. And then came back after a few years and everyone's telling him, you're crazy. Like, why are you going to study Arabic when you have this law degree from Oxford? And he's like, yeah, but you know that's what's important to me. That's what I want to study. So he comes back and he's, he's qualified as a lawyer. And now he's really fluent in Arabic and Islamic sciences. And he comes back at a time, this was maybe, what, 10, 15 years ago now, maybe mid-2000. And there's now this huge growth in demand for contracts either in Islamic law, like for Islamic finance, or even just for contracts in Arabic, because people are beginning to do more legal work and more contracts with the Middle East. Mm. And he managed to slip right back into this hugely high-paying niche that actually everyone told him, he's crazy, why are you just trying to live this ascetic life where you're seeking Allah, you know, you need to actually be making some money. Mm. He's like, no, I'll do this for a bit in my 20s. He's, you know, seeking Allah and he comes back and finds even more risk, even more sustenance provided to him. And he's able to fuse those two backgrounds as a lawyer and as someone with a solid understanding of Islamic finance and uh, and Arabic as well. That's just, when I hear that, I'm just really kind of astounded. I think that's fascinating, a fascinating example. This can sound controversial, but you might even say people like him, they are the ulama of our time. And what I mean by that, and it's kind of like, oh, oh, but you know, but you haven't studied for 30 years and you've got any jaza from this sheikh and that sheikh and this sheikh. I, I, I'm not, you know, I get that. But in the Islamic civilization we talk about, whatever civilization we talk about, a scholar wasn't just someone who knew loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of books. They were providing administrative services because in a developing Sharia society or Khilafah, you had courts, you had contract making, you had transactions. Those transactions would have been underpinned by a Sharia understanding. That would have required practical professionalism, not just what we have now, unfortunately, in a world where we're in a post-Khilafah state. Where there is no, well, I mean, you could argue we are still, in, I mean, we'll get into that, you know, we don't want to get into that, but we're now, a, we're, but the, the notion of a scholar is someone who is more um, just a philosophical jurist who's hidden away and thinking and pondering. Whereas back then there was that too, and there were thought creators, the ulama who kind of come up with thinking and interpretation of text, but they're also do it, doer scholars, like lawyers now. So I think that is a, you know, the qadi, you know, you had a judge. In a, in a fact, you know, they are also ulama in their own ways. Uh-huh. But they're giving a practical solution, not just, you know, an academic, you know, text on what this imam said 900 years ago. Exactly. And I think that's why it's really important for people to understand the roots. The asul is the roots, not just the final outcome. Now, I'll give a quick example. There's, there's so much more to discuss. I don't mm, we'll have to do a part two on this. Part two on this. This could go for years, but people understand fiqh nowadays, so people just understand the result of the fiqh. So they say, interest is haram. That is what we know. And then oh, we're, we're, we're getting into Islamic finance. Yeah, we're getting, yeah, the yeah. thing we didn't want to do. Anyway, Islamic so people, finance bros are going to be after us. There we go. Yeah. So 
yeah, people understand that interest is haram. So they say, we have this new product, which is no interest, but allows you to, to do X, Y, Z. It allows you to have a, you know, have a savings account with interest. It allows you to have a, a mortgage without interest. And it's like, what? And what they've done is recreated all these traditional interest-based products with some fancy legal groundwork. And I think that's, that's a shame, really, like you mentioned. We need a kind of ground-up rethinking of, of the finance system without interest and actually thinking, well, what is interest and why is it bad? Is it always bad? Like we always have this saying, interest is haram, but actually why and in what aspect? And when we say interest, we, we talk about riba in the Islamic finance context, but is riba always the same as interest? There's this whole, whole discussion and actually you take a lot of modern Islamic finance contracts and you give them to, let's say, a Western banker and he'll look at this and say, okay, you're putting your money in account, it's accruing extra money over time you say it's not river but this is just an interest savings account yeah done um and it's quite obvious that these are just traditional interest contracts but when you look into the thick of it you understand well why actually is interest haram this is something harms Yusuf's talked about um it's because it's detrimental to society mm. and so if you're recreating those contracts with some fancy legalese and some clever paperwork okay you've recreated something that maybe you don't think is a river but you've created something that is ultimately still therefore going to be harmful to society. If you, you know, interest, the two of the main underpinnings uh, of uh, Islamic contracts, so the Islamic law around, not just the Islamic law, but the Islamic usul around contract law, is that contracts should be unambiguous mm. and they should prevent harm. Mm. And risk and the sharing or fair allocation of risk exactly. between parties. And when you have a bank that's charging you an interest rate that's tied to the government interest rate, uh, you let's say we go to the bank now. Let's say we go to the bank after this, mm. and we're we're like we're gonna buy a house together. Great, the house costs five hundred k, and the we're gonna get a mortgage for x amount. How much are we gonna repay over the next twenty years? Ask the bank manager. How he doesn't know. He can't tell you. He can't tell you what the interest rate is gonna be next week, let alone in twenty years. Variable weight. Exactly. You you're signing up for a contract where you have no idea how much you're gonna be paying back. Anyway, and, and it's a one-sided, to some extent, one-sided, I mean, the bank will take your house, you're just paying them, and you know, yeah. Yeah, the bank's yeah. never going to be paying you extra. No, no, <laughs> yeah, the risk is completely, pretty much on your on your end, if you know what I mean. The bank can always just repossess your home and so forth. Exactly, and I, I want to be pragmatic as well, yeah. like, you know, what do we want our Muslim brothers and sisters mm-hmm. to do? Are they meant to be homeless? Are they meant to be renting, you know, for the rest of their lives? There's, there's not a good solution. The only... The only bulletproof solution I've heard, and I say this somewhat in jest, is I've heard a couple of brothers who have decided to buy boats. So I know a couple of brothers who bought like houseboats, uh, much cheaper. And you know, buying a property is only maybe five grand to buy a houseboat. There you go. You can save that up hopefully in a couple of years, and you you have your property, and you can travel with it as well. But I think the housing is going to be a big a big problem for for Muslims. Uh, I think it already is. Absolutely. And speaking of ilm nafia, there are some benefits which are more beneficial than other benefits at certain times and i think now when you mentioned islamic finance or islamic economics i think there's a massive hunger for this and more thinking needs to be done on what is river and navigating river in a western economic system which unfortunately is tied to the interest fractional reserve system which is unavoidable even if you are doing islamic uh, you know islamic transactions uh, to some extent it is still you know, going to be, you know, some of the transactions in Musharaka, you know, these kind of agreements, to some extent, are will be linked somehow to the Western kind of economic system. The issue is how far can we separate and how far can we not and where's the, where do you draw the line and how do you adapt? 
obviously there's other things which say you know islamic private equity which i guess people's money putting in investing and then the return that's absolutely clear cut there's no way around it that's halal there's nothing that's dodgy about it it's only when it gets to kind of the loans side of things and the buyout kind of lease purchase things that's where people get a lot more uh tetchy and i think in these areas what what we mentioned before really comes in the ability to connect the whole classics with the the modern ppe if you know what i mean the where we are now the politics philosophy and economics era of times the first principles how do you adapt it to day day in day out and i think and this is going to sound controversial this is far more beneficial for maybe our era than i think pure academic study for example which just studies or looks at kind of the more inner ascetic studies or things which we need which we need and not saying we don't need but some are more beneficial than others and and there's yeah there's a massive industry for that but one thing which i found as well is this can sound controversial you mentioned the era of polymath, polymaths you know the era of people like al khawarizmi or people like um ibn sina who was a surgeon but then a philosopher and then a this and then a that and then and Hamza Yusuf and Abdul Hakim will talk about that. Now, when I was at university, a lot of people said, yeah, but it was easy to be polymaths there. It's easy to be a polymath then because the disciplines have not yet developed. So then the core principles you can learn. I find we're now returning to an age where uh, light, being a light-touch polymath is coming back in vogue as opposed to being an expert in one area. I think for a while, for about 10, 20 years, being a PhD level, world-renowned authority expert in one area was like a name. It was like, oh, you can't be a polymath anymore. So just go into a field, absorb yourself into it and become a specialist in that area. I think we're now moving to an area where the, the polymaths of our time are people who have general expertise across different areas and it can seam things together. Like you might not know everything about everything, but you might know how to know things. I think that's coming in now. And I think with... Um, I don't know if you agree with me or not, but you're seeing people who can kind of weave things together, like finance, a bit of tech, a bit of law, a bit of politics, a bit of this. And they and those people are in demand as well now. I think they're kind of... So they're not yeah. polymaths, but it's light touch. And I can talk about that from a tech perspective. Yeah, where yeah, yeah. We talk about AI and you don't need to know everything, everything about AI, but if you know the basics, you know that, well, I can train an AI to do X. How do I train it? Well, I don't really know. Maybe using Python, maybe not maybe in the cloud, maybe not. But as long as you know, roughly, this is what we are able to do as a humanity. And what are we able to not do as well? And kind of knowing the limits of each discipline, I think is a very good place to start. There's a couple of points I wanted to end on. Um, we talked a lot about understanding uh, knowledge to draw closer to Allah, to benefit oneself, understand the world at large, as well as progressing to a job, potentially. And I wanted to have a quote here. So there's a hadith from the Prophet, peace be upon him. He said that, so the best among you are those who learn the Quran and teach it. And so clearly we can see that learning the Quran and Islamic sciences are some of the most noble acts that one can perform. But that's not to diminish, like we've said, any of the other sciences. If you're learning something with noble intention of teaching, benefiting others, benefiting yourself, you know, obviously the Quran is the gold standard, but still by teaching other things, mm. you, know, you can still be uh, of benefit to others and benefit to society. And what is learning and teaching the Quran as well? I mean, it's the, the eyes, but also the reflection of the Quran. You know, the, the actions. Action. 
the, 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 the principles of the Quran, you know, which is what I learn, study, expand your horizons. Yeah. Okay, let's run. Yes, go. Oh, Zohar, run. Right?